Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Good evening church. It really is a joy that we can come to God and worship him like that. Uh, it's something that I don't think is found anywhere else. No concert, um, no show can bring you I think just the joy of worshiping our God like that. Um, and so it really is a joy and an honor to, to be here with you this evening, uh, to come before God, to come before His Word, uh, and even just to worship Him together with you is, is such a joy this evening. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, so if you want to open your Bibles uh, there so long, please feel free to, to do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. For those who aren't a part of Central Baptist, Central Baptist has recently been going through a baby boom. There has been so many babies that will be born, which is confusing. There's already been a baby born, and there's a bunch more coming. Uh, we really are expecting plenty. And so what I've been hearing a lot lately, lately from these pregnant ladies is, I have to eat for two. I can't just eat for myself. I have to eat for myself and this child that is now within me. Not only that, though, but they manage their diet, take extra vitamins, And they're also more careful to look at everything that goes into their mouths because now there's something else in the picture, that being the baby within their womb. While the husband gets to continue to enjoy all the ice cream and sugar and everything else that he wants, uh, and he encourages his wife along the way. And so the question we're asking this evening and the title of our sermon for the evening is, are you eating for yourself? Are you eating for yourself? So consider again the mom versus the dad. The mom changes her diet. She changes her lifestyle because she sees that it is not only herself in view, but also another. The dad, on the other hand, eats all what he wants and lives like he wants within reason because it is only himself that is in view. And so we're going to turn tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, reading from there. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And our key text for tonight, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. 
Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's come to God in prayer before we we turn to his word. Church, tonight I want to ask you that you would please pray for yourselves. Pray that the Holy Spirit would press into you tonight, that the word would be effective into your heart, that God would keep you focused to hear on what he has to say to you tonight. And then I'd like to ask you to pray for me. Pray that I would be an effective instrument in the hands of God, that I would speak only the truth that he has given and written down, and that I would also be helpful to you this evening in understanding his word. Father, we come in deep dependence of you, Lord. Speak to us tonight. Let us leave here changed, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, working in us and through the preaching of your word, Lord. In your precious name, amen. The second question in the Baptist Catechism reads as follows. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so, the passage before us today is where we find all of man's ends, man's final goal, all that man is called to be and to do whilst we are here on earth. It's the reason why we exist and why we breathe. And that is not to bring glory to ourselves, but instead to rather bring glory to the one and only true God. That all of our actions, everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, might be to the praise, the honor, the renown, and the splendor of the God who made us. Thing is, there's one of two ways. Either we bring God glory or we bring God dishonor. And so our first point for this evening is for God's glory or disrepute. For God's glory or disrepute. This passage really finds itself settled in this entire concept of what does it mean to bring God glory. And so if you're allowing me tonight, I want to take a slight diversion from our passage as we come to look at what does it look like to not bring God glory. What is the opposite side of things? What does it look like when we don't bring God glory? And so we're looking at Ezekiel chapter 36 as our first chapter. Ezekiel 36 is this chapter just after Israel has been dispersed across the nations. In 500 BC, they were spread out across, taken by multiple captors, and set out of their land. And so we find this in Ezekiel chapter 36 as God responds to the situation that has happened. 36 verse 19, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. In other words, they'd done wrong. They had dishonored God. They turned to idols and other things, and because of that, God sent them out of the land of promise. 
Reading from verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said to them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. And so what happened is the people dishonored God. God punished them, sent them out of the land. And the foreign nations looked in and they said, well, this must clearly be a very poor God. This God couldn't even keep them in their own land. You see, at that time, they had plenty localized gods, gods which were settled in a specific region. And so they thought, if this God simply cannot even keep them in their land, he must be a bad God. He must be an impotent God. He must lack the ability. And so God, having his reputation profaned, responds this in verse 21 of Ezekiel 36. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all the idols I will cleanse you. And the passage we recognize most. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, when we sin, God is criticized. Because when we sin against the pure and holy God, God has to discipline us. And when Christians are disciplined, that makes us miserable, right? When we fall under God's judgment, it makes us miserable. And when the external world looks at us and goes, look at these miserable Christians, they go, they must not have a very good God. They must not have a very great God. There must be something wrong with their God. We see this all the time in our modern day. Look at the mess this world's in. There's famine, there's flood, there's poverty, there's murder. And the response from the world, response from the world is, yeah, you clearly have a great God. If God is so loving, so merciful, so gracious, why is the world like this? You see, when men sin, God is just and he must punish sin. And then God gets the bad rap for it. His name is profaned. Reproach is born by God because of us. And so God comes to his people and he says, it would be a great help if you would just not sin. If you would not sin, if you would follow my commands, if you would just do what I say, I can bless you. And then because of the blessing, the nations will look and they will praise my name because of it. We read a similar thing in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you of a nation greater and mightier than they. And I want you to see the response of Moses, of what what he calls to. 
But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from fear among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he killed them in the wilderness. And so what does Moses appeal to? He appeals to God's glory. He says, God, do not strike down this nation because if you strike down the nation, your name will be cast to shame. God, you will not receive the glory that is due to your name. They will say that God is because your hand was too short. Because God, you were not powerful enough to bring them into the land. Read something similar, Deuteronomy chapter 9, reading from verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. You see, God's reputation is important to him. God's glory is important to him. We need to understand this. We need to understand that God is for his glory. At the same time, this is not to say we cannot come to God and every time we sin say, but God, look at your glory. God, if if you punish me for my sin, I'm going to whine, I'm going to cry, I'm going to make it look bad. And then God, you're going to look bad because of that. We read of another instance, almost uh, as Jeremiah comes and, and he tries to do this before God, we see God's response in Jeremiah chapter 14. Though our iniquities testify against us, Act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our black slidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you, hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. As Jeremiah appeals, saying, God, look out for your glory. Here's what God responds in verse 10. Thus says the Lord concerning his people. They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their, their iniquities and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. You see, you might ask the question, if God is all for his glory, if God never has to discipline one, God could just wipe everything clean, make everything good, everything right. You see, God is definitely for his glory. God cares about his name and his reputation. But God cannot bypass his justice. God cannot step around it. God cannot circumvent it. The wages of sin is death, and it needs to be paid. And so, because of our lives, God is defamed. 
and our lives ought to be for the glory of God. Read an example of this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants, in other words, anyone who is working for somebody, whether that's you studying as a student, whether that's you working for a boss, right? We're all under some sort of yoke upon someone else. Let you as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why is it that you should regard your master as worthy of all honor? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You see, there's only two options for our lives. That is either to glorify God or to bring Him dishonor. And so the question that I want to sit on our minds and the reason we've taken this discourse is because I want us to consider, are you caring about God's honor? As you live your life, do you care about God's honor? Do you care about His name? Do you care about His reputation? If you're a poor employee, an employee who's lazy, an employee who lies, your boss is not going to look at you and go, that's the God I want to serve. Instead, he's going to say that must be some weak and poor God because look at his people. Look at his people. They don't even live in the way that he's called them to live. Do we care about God's honor? And so we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been with Paul over the last few weeks since Job began in chapter 8 speaking through a section on the topic of food. Specifically, is it all right to eat food that has been sacrificed in a temple? And so as we've looked at this, we've seen that Paul is speaking about these gray areas of life, the areas that the Bible does not specifically speak against. Is it okay to drink alcohol? Is it okay to go to a club? How should one date? Use of social media, spending money on expensive stuff, or even listening to non-Christian music. And so how is it as we view God's glory that Christians ought to engage with these things? What does it look like to exercise practical wisdom as we go through our daily lives? To answer this, we need to look at the second point for this evening, using Christian freedom for God's glory. Using Christian freedom for God's glory. You might ask, and some of us being here for the first time, what is Christian freedom? Well, Galatians 5.1 tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Before Jesus died on the cross, God's people followed meticulous laws set out for them by God. They served as the moral compass for people's lives. The law, whilst powerless to grant salvation or even to produce true freedom, nevertheless pointed the way to Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' sacrificial death, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He completed all of its requirements, setting believers free from the law of sin and death. And so God's laws are now not necessarily just written in a book, but they are written in our hearts through the Spirit of God. And we're free to follow and to serve God and to serve Christ in ways that please and glorify Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, to bring it back into our topic of idols and, and eating food sacrificed to idols. 1 chapter, Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord 
Jesus Christ, to whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so we are no longer bound. We are no longer held captive to this law. We instead instead participate through the Holy Spirit working in of us as we produce and work to practice godliness. Thing is, we tend to turn away from this. So this past Thursday night, after Bible study, we had a discussion. The discussion got a little bit heated because I thought I was right. And in fact, I still think that I'm right. But despite all of that, I know for absolute certainty that I was wrong. One might ask, how is it possible for me in a situation to be both completely correct and yet completely incorrect? It's because though I had my points waxed, I had my biblical backing, I had my practical examples all lined up, I was seeking to win the argument rather than to win the person. I had Christian freedom. Yes, I definitely had Christian freedom, but I failed to use it responsibly. And this is so often what we do with our rights. We twist them until they become wrongs. One might say, but this thing is lawful, or better yet, the Bible doesn't say that this is wrong. I am free with regards to listening to this music or watching this movie. And yes, you'd be completely correct. Jesus himself says it is not what enters from outside the body which defiles a man, but that which comes from within. But as we discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so in view of God's glory, as we picture his majesty, as we think, what does it look like for me to live for God's glory? We now come to this discussion of freedom, Christian freedom. What does it look like for me to honor God, to bring him glory to the use of my Christian freedom? And so I want to give us four points tonight as to how we use our Christian freedom to glorify God. Our first principle that we come to is permissible versus profitable. Permissible versus profitable. We read in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. We see this phrase twice repeated here, all things are lawful. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see the exact same phrase repeated, all things are lawful. You see, it's clear at some time when Paul was with them for that year that he was amongst them, that he clearly spoke this statement, all things are lawful. And so now anytime somebody wants to do something, it sits in that gray area, let's go, well, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. It's definitely permissible for me. I can do it. And they use that as an excuse to do basically what they want. It may be true. Yes, all things might be lawful. They may be permissible. Question is, is it profitable? Does it edify? Does it build up? Does it grow? And a reminder here, we're not talking necessarily about those things that are positive or negative. We're talking about the amoral. Those things that aren't necessarily either sinful or useful. I'm not saying you can't go on a go-kart ride or go paintballing or watch certain movies. My question is just, what is the end goal? If you take a car and you keep it in neutral, it never goes anywhere. 
And so often I think we're trying to drive our lives and go neutral, 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 and we never end up anywhere different than from when we started. Think of a marketplace. Even as he speaks of this word being profitable, right? There are many opportunities for you to create a business. There are many, many ideas that you can follow, many thoughts that you can pursue, but there are only few that will actually make you money. The rest at the end of time will leave you without time and without money. Hence, dealing those things useful, useless. And so the question I have this evening is, are you pursuing the profitable or the permissible? I want to give us a couple of phrases, a couple of questions we can ask ourselves as we look to, to decipher. Is this thing useful? Is what I'm about to do, this decision I'm about to make, will it glorify God? And so three questions for us. The first question is, is it against God's word? If it's against God's word, we know already that it will not glorify God if we do it. And so if it's against God's word, we do not do it. The second is, is it profitable? Does it have something to benefit to myself or to others? Thirdly, does it build up myself or others? Is it driving me towards or away from God? In the end, our goal should not just be to live lives in neutral, to live lives seeking those things which are just in that gray area. So ask, where am I pursuing the positive things? Where am I building those things into my life? And so Don Carson gives us a very good quote that I think answers this question. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. And so our first principle as we look to, to glorify God through our Christian freedom is, is it permissible or profitable? Our second principle we want to look at is, is it self-centered or self-sacrificial? Self-centered or self-sacrificial? We read in verse 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. As a Christian, we're obliged to view our actions in light of how it's going to affect those around us, other Christians. You'll discover that, that when you seek to, to look at God's will for your life in the light of others, that the world doesn't like that. That it's so contrary to the nature of how this world moves and works. The world encourages you to live your own life. To take care of your own needs and wants first. Get yourself right first. Look after yourself first. Do a bit of self-love. You see, sin promotes independence. It isolates us from others and separates you from those you could help or those you could encourage. God did not design us to be lone creatures, but rather to be interdependent with one another. Tying this to the first principle that we, we read and spoke about earlier, is it building up fellow believers? And that word for building up is to build a house, 
right? Are we constructing in the lives of those around us something that is good, that is valuable, that is glorifying to God? Are we edifying our fellow believers? Are we spurring them on ahead of us, encouraging them, cheering them on, sending them prayer messages, sending them words of encouragement, sending them scriptures? You see, the church in Corinth didn't want to know how they can encourage on their fellow brothers and sisters. They wanted to know how little they could get away with. And this is definitely the wrong approach. A commentator has this to say. Whenever you meet another Christian, you come face to face with Christ. There ought to be a deep respect within you as you encounter other lives guided by the Holy Spirit. Do not live as if you have no responsibility towards your Christian brother or sister. God holds you accountable for how you relate to them. Don't revel in your freedom in Christ to the point that you neglected your responsibility towards others. Paul celebrated his freedom in Christ, but he was keenly sensitive to what might cause other Christians harm. He was aware that his sin could not take place in isolation, but could bring pain to many others. I feel that for many of us, even when we think, we, we say, but Carsten, I, I, I chat to people, I get to know them, I do these things, I go out. Have you ever spoken to someone who's got reflective glasses on? And as much as you're talking to them and you're looking at them, you're looking them in the eye and say, I'm looking them in the eye, I'm caring for them, I'm after you, what you're looking at is actually a reflection of yourself. It's actually yourself that you care about much more than the person at hand. So the question comes, how are you caring for your brother and your sister? How are you looking after them? Is it self-centered or self-sacrificial? You see, you must deny yourself and allow the Holy Spirit to put to death your natural inclination to be self-centered. As long as you focus on yourself, you'll be oblivious to the needs of others. And so pray. Pray that God would free you from your selfishness so that you would live a life free to bless others, to edify, to exhort, and to encourage. We read in Romans 14, verse 18, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then... Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, that we might be found acceptable to Christ and that we might bring God glory. You see, God is glorified in our self-sacrificial living. God is glorified when you follow that which is profitable over that which is permissible. And thirdly, God is glorified when we look at the legal or the liberal, the legal or the liberal. Here we find more of a balance between these two extremes, much more than we're trying to pursue one or the other. Paul encourages Christian freedom. We read in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You see, you're at the butcher's, you're going there, like you don't need to ask the guy exactly where did you get this meat from, who was it prayed over, what happened. Paul literally says, don't investigate, don't ask, buy the cheap meat, take it home, cook it, bright, do whatever you want, eat and be merry. That's what he says. He says there is freedom in Christ to not worry about those things, to not look at those things. The same thing, if you end up and an unbeliever invites you to their house, you go to their house and you don't know whether that food is offered to an idol or not. He says, don't ask. Go to their house, 
eat, enjoy the freedom that you have. Eat that steak, enjoy it. Even though it might be offered to an idol, don't ask, your freedom will let you go. So whether you eat that steak or have that beer, God said it is good to eat with sinners. We're only banned from eating at the table of sinners who are Christians, who are called to turn away from their sins and repent, and we're called to cast them off until they will turn back to God. And so, why does he say this? Why does he say we can do this? Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He says the meat already belonged to God. The hoof that you're about to eat that was on the cow, the cow was made by God. Okay, and so all things glorifying to God, so your steak is glorifying to God. Awesome. But we need to take care. We need to take care. With regards to yourself, with regards to being with the unbeliever, Paul is practical. He says, eat. Enjoy your freedom. Don't even ask the question, just do it. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. And so you're sitting at the guest's table. You're going there. You've got the steak. It's ready to go into your mouth. And as it's about to go into your mouth, the Christian next to you whispers, it's been offered to an idol. What do you do? What do you do? Clearly this person is seeing that there is something wrong with eating this meat that's been offered to an idol. Who do you offend? Do you offend the unbeliever or do you offend the believer? Paul tells us in this passage, you offend the unbeliever. You rather offend the unbeliever than the believer. But Paul, aren't you telling us that that you're the person who said you're going to be all things to all men? Whatever it takes to win the soul, Paul still says, rather offend the unbeliever. He calls us in this passage. He says, yes, we want to win them, but how will we win them? John 13, 35. By this we will know that you are my disciples. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love one for another. And so what does he say? He says, the world's going to look in. It's going to look on you. It's going to judge you because you're not pulling away from this situation. You're pulling away from listening to this style of music, pulling away from this thing for the sake of your weaker brother. But they'll look in and go, there's something different here. This guy clearly loves his brother enough or his sister enough to step away from this thing. And as they look in, God will be glorified. And so, looking that the unbeliever will be won over by your display of love rather than your display of freedom. You ought to do it for the sake of conscience. Not yours, Paul says, as you are free. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4 to 5. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so as we go through, as they pray, For that meal, for that meat, it's sanctified. It's brought holy before God and they can eat the meat freely. But we need to look after our brother's conscience. And so we do not partake that we might build the brother up. What we don't want to do is we don't want to perpetuate the cycle of weakness. We don't want to say, I'm never going to eat it with them. We say, in this moment, I'm not going to eat this with them. I'm not going to listen to that music. I'm not going to watch that movie with them in the presence. 
What I'm rather going to do is I will spend time with them outside of this. I will build them up. I'll edify them. I'll grow them. I will teach them the scriptures that they too might be able to enjoy the freedom which we all have the privilege of enjoying. So does this mean we should go around asking each person what offends them? Should I go? We'll go front row. Should I go to Jabu? Should I go to Tobile, Zinkle? Should I go to Peter? Should I go to each of them and ask them, give me a list of the things that offend you, like those gray areas, and then when I, when eventually like when I'm around you, I know not to do these things. That's not what Paul's asking us to do. You see, here's where that legalism portion comes in, because we love a list. We love to say, just follow A, B, C, and D, and you know what? Then you're good and right, and God's glorified. Instead, God calls us to live by the Holy Spirit, to seek that he would convict us, in the areas we need conviction, to know where are those right spaces that we need to abstain rather than to enjoy our freedom. 1 Corinthians 10, 32, reading on this passage. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So if I had to ask you tonight to stand up, And to say, how is it that you have denied yourself to help a brother or a sister? How many of you would be able to confidently point to instances that you've actually taken it upon yourself to put yourself aside and to instead look at the interest of the other? You see, we live in a self-seeking, self-centered culture. May it not be so among us. May it not be so among us believers. We should joyfully give up our rights, that we would win the sinner and that we would edify the saint. And so joyfully use your freedom by yourself and with unbelievers. But if there is a chance it might harm the weaker brother, rather offend the unbeliever, that they will be won by your care for your brother and sister. And so lastly, our last point of wisdom as we seek to understand what does it look like to glorify God, narcissistic or theocentric. Narcissistic or theocentric. We read again our central verse for the sermon, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I want to reiterate, we have a choice. Either this world is about us or it is about God. Either it's saying to the world, look at me, or it says, look to God. Either it says it's all about God's glory or it's all for God's disrepute to scorn God's name and to cast him aside. So I want you to look at your life as you have a moment this evening to consider what God has for us in his word. I want you to look at your life. Is there something in your life that might point an unbeliever away from Jesus instead of towards him? Is there some way you're acting that that you're saying, but God, this is what I want to do, this is where I want to go, this is what I want to see things Is there a way you might be hindering someone from coming to Christ? Jesus himself says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus served each of us who does not deserve anything because we've all done more to bring shame to God's name than to bring glory to his name. Jesus himself came to this earth, lived the perfect life we could not live, brought all glory to God his Father, died on a cross scornfully, shamefully, mocked by men, taking our place. 
died a shameful death that we should have died, but was raised again to new life, that we would live for more than just ourselves, live for something so much greater than we can ever know or think or imagine, to live not to our own glory, but the glory of our God. And so my call to you, if you're on here tonight, and you're saying, Carson, this sounds like a bunch of rules. This is not what I'm interested in. What I've said tonight applies to those who commit themselves to Christ, to those who have believed in him. If you're here tonight and you say, I haven't yet realized that I have dishonored God, that I've turned astray, I've turned aside from his ways, and you haven't believed in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, I plead with you tonight. I plead with you tonight. The same way that we said that God's glory cannot be ruined, cannot be set aside, cannot be done against without God's justice. If you do not turn away from your wicked ways and turn to God, God will put his justice upon you. So do so tonight and find freedom. Find that which God offers. Find life and not death. J.H. Howitt has something to say, and I want to read this because I think it summarizes a little bit of what we're talking about tonight. What does it mean to bring glory to God? When we consider the full picture of our lives, our lives which ought to be sold out for God, sold out, giving it all for him, J.H. Howard says, and so all my days would constitute a vast temple, and life would constitute worship. This is surely the science and art of holy living, to relate everything to the infinite. When I take my common meal and relate it to the glory of God, the common meal becomes a sacramental feast. When my labor, labor is joined unto the Lord, the sacred wedding turns my workshop into a church. When I link the country lane to the Savior, I'm walking in the garden of Eden and paradise is restored. The fact of the matter is, we never see anything truly until we see it in the light of the glory of God. Set a dull beauty in that light and it shines like a diamond. Set a bit of drudgery in that light and it becomes transfigured like the wing of a starling when the sunshine falls upon it. Everything is seen amiss until we see it in the glory And therefore it is my wisdom to set everything in that light and to do all to the glory of God. Would we commit ourselves as we seek to live this life amidst believers and unbelievers to do it all for God's glory, even in such a thing as our choice in music or movies, to consider the permissible and the profitable the self-censored or the self-sacrificial, the legal or the liberal, and most importantly, the narcissistic or the theocentric. Consider each of these. Weigh that our lives may not be to our own glory, but that they would be to the God who is worthy of all glory. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray that as we come And as we're challenged by your word, Lord, Lord, I admit that so often, God, I do things for myself. That so often I am the center of attention, Lord. That so often, God, even in the way that I live with regards to my brothers and sisters in Christ, that God, I'm more often looking to be, 
to make everything about me, Lord. Lord, help us tonight, Lord. Help each of us, Lord. Lord, to come to you in repentance and say, God, we've lived this life not for your glory, but for our own. And help us, Lord, as we use our Christian freedoms, God, to do so for your glory. God, not to say all things are lawful, all things are lawful, all things are lawful, but to ask, God, what will bring you glory? What will bring you glory in our lives, Lord? Praying this in your precious name, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.